Hi, Crystal. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. You can hear me well. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah, I grew up here in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and more specifically, I grew up splitting my time between the Northwood neighborhood of Baltimore City and Lock Raven, um, and also in the suburbs in Essex, Maryland. And um, I would say that those two places heavily influenced what I ate growing up. Um, my mom was also a a teacher who was a single mom, but also in school getting her master's. So it was kind of like a lot of latchkey kid situations. So a lot of processed food, um, for better or for worse. <laughs> Lunchables were my best friend growing up. I love Stilford's mac and cheese. But then I did also spend, um, when I was in Northwood area, Northwood Lock Raven, um, I was spending time with my cousins and my grandmother. And that was a lot of like home cooked meals then. So like chicken and dumplings or fried okra, things of that nature. So I kind of got a mix of those two things. I feel like it's a true um, black great migration story kind of situation going on with my palate, especially from the mid-Atlantic region. So like soul food from the South, but then also Stouffer's, yeah. <laughs> you know. The Stouffer's mac and cheese is good. I, I it is good. It is. My mother, though, she really tried to like pass that off as hers for a little bit. As I said, like at one point she was dating some guys, and I remember every time she was like, "We're gonna make dinner," and they would always think that that was her mac and cheese, and it was like, "That's not like why are you lying to these men?" <laughs> but yeah, no, very delicious. Very delicious. Um, so, you know, so much of what you do is specific to Baltimore. And I read an interview you did in 2019 where you talked about using interdisciplinary art as a way of understanding the city and the changes it's gone through. You know, now that so much of your work is online and accessible to people outside of your city, like outside of that framework that you have, how have you changed your approach at all? Like, how are you maintaining the very specific Baltimore nature of your work while you're now working for so many, a much broader and bigger audience geographically? And I, I wanted to ask this because I really love regional specificity. <laughs> like, I think that we lose so much of it in like the national media. And I think that we yes. get to the truth when we are hyper-specific about, about locations and, and, you know, being specific doesn't mean being, um, you know, esoteric. Um, but any, yeah. yeah, how do you maintain that in your work? <laughs> um, I feel like maintaining that is kind of like an act of maintaining my identity mm -hmm. in a way. Um, so for me, it just feels like it's something that I, I actively do every day. Like I get up, I have coffee, I have breakfast, and then I actively engage with my neighborhood, you mm -hmm. know, just to kind of have a sense of understanding of who I am and where I come from. And it is harder, I would say it's actually harder now, more so because of the changes that are happening in Baltimore. I've always, well, unfortunately, unfortunately, I've always had to kind of create and share my work online because there really isn't a space for me that I feel fully fits um, my work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not, I'm not in a restaurant anymore. I'm not a, like, I don't own a bakery anymore. I don't do any of those things. I'm like you said, it is very interdisciplinary. And for me, I feel like my work is more of a, a lived practice. I know that sounds like cheesy and yeah. like hippy dippy, but for me, it's never like 
okay, the angle is to like get this item on the shelf or the angle is to be in this magazine or like have this established space. For me, the angle is to better understand. Mm-hmm. So I feel like to better understand like who I am in this moment, where I am in this, in this world and like the tools that I use every day, how are they like specifically food? Mm-hmm. How are they, um, influenced by my surroundings, influenced by what's going on, influenced by my emotions. Um, all of that for me, especially um, as I mentioned in the need for visual, as a neurodivergent person, I feel like I view the world in a way that is um, not commonly explored. And, you know, one of the I guess one of my traits is being a little bit more vulnerable than I, than an average person would be. And I feel like while that to some can be seen as a weakness to me, it's seen as a strength and being able to have these open conversations about what's happening in Baltimore and how that is very much intertwined with the fate of what's happening in cities like Baltimore, like St. Louis and Detroit and the like, you know, these, these, once very industrial cities that are heavily populated by black people, oftentimes black people who came there because of the great migration. Like what does that, what does that, the food ways of those areas look like and how do they um, connect with how we identify in a national sense mm-hmm. as black Americans? So that's always been something that's fascinating to me and having been put into this position where um I guess through like my connections or relationship to like women in food in the like white women in food specifically in the food industry, being able to have these conversations in a way that um, I don't know kind of holds folks accountable. Like <laughs> these are not just things that are happening, um, you know, that are happening off in cities that you have no connection to they're happening in brooklyn too it's just like people are refusing to acknowledge the role that they play so for me it feels like um not that i have great power but with like this attention you know with great with great power comes great responsibility with this attention i feel like it's my responsibility as a black person that's not in a major market to have these conversations for myself for my city and for other people whose lives and like, I guess, sense of place intersects with those things. That makes sense. That makes sense. And <laughs> you bring that hyper specificity to ingredients as well. You use local ingredients. I've gone through so many of your recipes in your Patreon and I was, I'm like, wow, like I love this, you know, use of things that are not going to be available everywhere. Like I, I don't think that, that kind of specificity is alienating. And I do think that sometimes we have these conversations that kind of assume that that is alienating to people, but you really just bring that into the fore of your work that, that you are in a specific place and you use specific ingredients. And so I wanted to know about how you ended up using food as a medium and how the locality um, of those foods has, has become important to you. Yeah, um, I think for me, it actually all started years ago when I had this um, frozen dessert business called Karma Pop, which was like frozen popsicles based on mid-Atlantic seasonality. Um, So I was using um, like okra in desserts and and frozen desserts, like an okra granita kind of um, with like coconut milk and the mucus from the okra, kind of giving it that like creamier texture. Um, just really trying to show the ways that 
food in this region doesn't have to be presented in one specific way. And if we like tap into our imagination, the possibilities are endless. Mm -hmm. Um, So working with urban farms here, working with black owned farms here, um, to me, I felt showing, using those ingredients in those unique ways, it kind of shows the, um, the imagination and the range, but also like we're not tied to this specific image, right? Like if I were to say okra to someone, they would, as I mentioned before, instantly go to like, oh, fried okra or like, oh, like some type of soul food style dish. But to me, it feels like, um, you know, we know that it's so much more than that. You know, it's not just this reduced to this one thing. And that's, I feel oftentimes how um, black food ways are reduced in this country. It's very much like, oh, fried chicken, soul food, period. That's it. Like there's no complexity there when the reality is it is so complex. Mm-hmm. So that's generally what I that was like the thing that drew me to food, like the ability to use it as a storytelling medium. And I was loving doing that with something that was very, I guess, childlike and somewhat pedestrian, like a popsicle, you know, it's something that it, it shows that you can use very um, regular everyday ingredients, but kind of have your own fun, unique twist on it. And the story, the end product itself can tell the story of how you arrived there, you know? Um, So I guess that's how it came to be for me, just kind of finding a way to show the diversity and range of um, Black food items or foods that are popular in Black food culture, and then wanting to um, expand on that by, you know, telling the story. Yeah. Um, I read also that, you know, you talk about food as medicine and mm-hmm. that you've done herbal medicine coursework. How, what got you interested in that and how does it influence your kind of recipe creation work? Um, well, for me, I think I got into that just because I, the whole, the whole goal of my practice is for me to kind of heal from living in this society and just living in the world that we live in. And I never really had the, um, like I said, I never wanted to create um, things to kind of have this angle of like putting it into a museum. And I think that's why people really struggled for a long time when I started self-identifying as an artist. Mm-hmm. They were like, we can't put this in museums. And also this is something that people do every day. So why is this art? Um, and that kind of made me transition to calling myself more of an interdisciplinary creative because the act of healing is artful it's very artful and I I don't think that you know it should be just um kind of I don't think it should be something that lives in silence I think public healing is important and I think that that was one of the reasons when I started creating like um I guess activations and spaces and like things of that nature and programs public programs I really wanted folks to show that you can heal, but you don't have to heal um, in isolation. You can heal collectively. We can heal collectively and we can use food as an item to heal ourselves collectively, like making active choices Mm -hmm. with what we want to eat and understanding that if we don't have the access to certain things, like what are the steps that we need to take or what are the steps that we can take um, as a community collectively to feed each other, to ensure that, you know, our community has access and ownership, ownership, over the type of food we should be eating. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, for me, it, the, the act of healing in itself was one of the things that kind of drove me to exploring like herbal medicine. It was like, okay, I can continue to make work that, you know, is more of like a 
figurative expression of the act of healing, or I can actually like double down on that and have it be, you know, something that is actually physically healing my body. And I think that's how I um, came to kind of growing in the work through this dinner series that I had called Clearing the Field. And it was about healing the intergenerational trauma in my family. Um, but using specific ingredients that I knew had um, healing properties. So specific type of green, types of greens and herbs, um, activated charcoal, all of that other stuff, incorporating that into the dinner um, along with poetry and um, some personal narratives around the specific courses um, and just showing like how it's a journey on the path to healing and how it can be something that is really transformative, painful, but also nourishing at the same time. Right. And, you know, when I dove kind of deep into your work and the, all the stuff that you've done over the last decade and built and, and all of this, and, you know, whether it was Karma Pop or it is Studio IAO, and now you're publishing on Patreon and you're putting out Palette Palette, you know, what, how has working independently, why has that been your path? Um, (laughs) it's difficult I you know I actually don't always want to work independently but uh okay well I'll be a little vulnerable for a second so which I don't mind being (laughs) but um I would say like over which by the way I want to say these questions were very good questions I was going through and answering them myself this weekend like writing them out and I was like damn (laughs) <laughs> you know like just, these are really good questions that people never ask me so thank you thank you um i it's easier for me yeah. unfortunately i you know as i said i'm an autistic person and i don't it's not something that's new to me i was diagnosed at a time where like that was not like my mother had to fight to get me diagnosed as autistic um because you know autism is only really for white boys (laughs) um and it it had to she had to fight to keep me in school she had to fight to get me like accommodations in school to like graduate so I think for me and also understanding like my social it is very exhausting for me to be social (laughs) um and it's very exhausting for me to you know there are things about my autism that I see as a superpower and like I feel like it really allows me again like I feel like the work that I do is because of my autism and allows me to see like the like human connection to food in a way that I don't think is fully talked about Mm -hmm. but it also um it's hard to work with people who are living in a neurotypical world where like being able-bodied is the norm Mm -hmm. and especially it's difficult for me because I don't seemingly present as a disabled person. I don't present present as the way that autistic people show up in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So I tend to um, struggle with like having a conversation with people about my identity as a um, autistic person, as a um, neurodivergent person. And it is important to me that I do have that with collaborators. Mm So I can't casually collaborate in that way. Um, if I do collaborate, it's usually after a moment of like fully sitting with this person or spending a lot of time with this person and then like disclosing. I guess to some folks, 
um, who are in the neurodivergent community, it could come off as me masking. And in a sense, I guess I am. I have been masking for over 20 years um, just because it's already hard enough as a black woman to survive in this industry or to survive in this world and to have another element um, added to my identity publicly where people aren't even fully understanding of what autism means. Mm-hmm. And they think it's something that needs to be cured and they think it's something that needs to be fixed. Um, I don't feel that like people, people barely understand my experience as a black woman. They are not going to understand my experience as a neurodivergent black woman. So for me, when I do collaborate with folks, even for example, palette, palette, Mm -hmm. it's usually in a more of a, like, I control this. (laughs) Like, okay. Like you want to work with me? Cool. This is what we're going to do. Like, would you like to submit something? Which I feel like for my work and the way that it's shifting lately, has been really helpful. I've been doing a lot more zines and a lot more digital prints um, or like digital publications. And um, I get to control that element. Now, also, that does mean that because I am in complete control, if something goes wrong, it does fall back on me. (laughs) Um, But I'm I'm learning to deal with that. But I will say with my most recent project, Palette Palette, with Homie House Press, um, I did disclose to them like, Hey, like I'm autistic and these are the things that I need. Like, it's going to be really hard for me to like communicate with you without a visual. I have trouble with auditory processing. So I need to see you. I need to know what your face is looking like. Like also, sorry if I don't look at you in the eye, <laughs> like it's a lot of things. Like, you know, if I seem really like overly passionate about one specific aspect of this project like please let me have that moment mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah it's, it's just a lot of things that I don't fully feel comfortable working with folks um on without having to fully disclose how I show up in the world which sucks yeah but I don't I think it's a little bit of me but I think it's also mostly just like I said before the world that we live in yeah no absolutely and that makes sense. And I mean, it means that you having ownership of your work means it is an expression of you. And I mean, I know from my own experiences, even having, when you work with other people, there's a compromise in vision that is not always okay. (laughs) Yeah. And that's also why I, you know, I've had more success working by myself than I have trying to get things through in a more traditional way. And it's a struggle to count, to work independently and have all the pressure be on you and have all the work be on you. But at the same time, the reward ends up being so much bigger because not because it's all for you and it's not an, it's not an ego thing. It just means that you got out what you meant to say. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. I mean, I feel that way about Palette Palette. Like yeah. you said, it is very, it's very much focused on Baltimore yeah. and it is for me a, a, like a love letter to my city and I wanted to, or my, and how my relationship to this city has like influenced so much of my relationship to food. And I really didn't want um, anyone else kind of coming in and telling me about how my relationship should present to the world. It was really about like, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. No, it's not, you know, it's not LA. It's not Brooklyn. You know, no, these, these poems are not formal poems. Like if a poet came through, they would rip it to shreds. <laughs> cool. Like these are, this is all like real authentic, um, emotions from a person who is just living, breathing, existing, and doesn't have like any formal accreditation to do so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, that was that was um, important to me, and I think that 
that was one of the reasons that, oh, yes, <laughs> that's one of the reasons this was um, a successful collaboration. Um, so I'm really proud. Yeah. And on the website for Pellet Pellet, you kind of explain your motivation to self-publish by saying, you know, that you've seen much food media that was PR and social media influencer driven. Um, and that's why you wanted to create something new and fresh and hyper-specific to your city and your experience. So what is the food media that you do enjoy? Like, what are you looking for when you look for stuff about food? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess I'm looking for hyper-local stuff too. I love to see that. You know, I love to see how, you know, someone's relationship to a place has informed their relationship to food. Yeah, Um, I'm looking for people I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm so tired of seeing people I know, even when it's like people that I love and I'm like, Oh yeah. But it's like, also like, I also follow like 10 other girls that do this and I don't know them. And a lot of people don't know them. And I'm not, you know, maybe I'm really good at doing research, but I feel as though like I, if I was able to find this person who lives in Portland, Oregon, doing very black stuff. <laughs> like, how is it that y'all were not able to find them? I mean, you have a whole like institution behind you. You know what I mean? You have all these resources. Yeah. So I think it's a, and I don't, and I don't think it's just the journalists. I think they do sometimes do their research and then they present it, and the editor is like, no, no one's going to read this because no one knows who this person is. Yeah. So I think it was really me being like, okay, I need to. If I'm tired of the way that people are writing about Baltimore, specifically um, folks like Bonap, um, like, you know, they are, I think, I think the people at Bonap, the ones that are still there and the ones who were there, but left, I think they mean well, but I also feel like the, they don't fully understand the harm that they perpetuate in markets like mine. Mm-hmm. And it's upsetting and it's frustrating. And I get tired of, you know, like I said, my city is changing so much and it's changing to a point where I don't even recognize it anymore. This diner that I used to go to before the pandemic has closed down and has been bought by some like DC person and they're going to like turn it into like this new fancy like diner, but also like a play on the diviness of it. And it just feels so, (laughs) it just feels like that's happening everywhere in Baltimore. Um, You know, the gay neighborhood that I like pretty much essentially I feel grew up in like the twenties and all of the gay bars have been turned into condos or CVSs. It's just so upsetting. (laughs) It's so upsetting. I walked into the CVS and I was like, I had my first like dirty martini here ever (laughs) in in the CVS. And I was like writing about that the other day and just thinking about it. And it's just like, damn, so much has changed. And I wish that, you know, the things that aren't celebrated are not, um, I wish the things that were celebrated were things like basic working class food ways, mm-hmm. like, which we could also dive deeper into and just explore how capitalism has got us to this point, yeah. you know? And I think that, um, you know, while I'm not necessarily in love with the food anymore that I grew up on, I think, um, and I can send you a copy of this. I don't know if you have you. Do you have a copy of Palette Palette? I'm. I will order it. Don't worry. No. No. <laughs> no, no. But there's a poem in the in the issue. Yeah. It's, it's called um, Nostalgia. Is the Greek word or has the Greek words for home and pain in it? Mm-hmm. Those are the root words in nostalgia. Um, and 
the whole point of the poem is at the end, you know, I want to celebrate the ways that we have survived, even if they're not the prettiest, even if they're not like what is trending right now. Like that was the whole point of Palette Palette in itself, like talking about chicken boxes and how, yes, this is something that is very much heavily a part of black American culture, but how has this tool also been used to oppress us? Right. Like, if we were doing like a very basic baseline argument about fried chicken and saying like, this is culturally appropriate food. Like why is this not a food sovereign item? You know what I mean? Like then people would be like, Oh, well black people love fried chicken. So why are they complaining? Like we're just giving them what they want. And I think that for me, like creating that type of work and having those type of conversations, it was really important because I knew that no one else was going to have that. Mm -hmm. I know that my experience in Baltimore is not the same as the experience of someone who was living in, like a black person living in Chinatown, mm -hmm. like in New York. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes in food media, that is how the experience is completed or even let alone Harlem. Yeah. Like that's, that's not my lived experience. Mm -hmm. You know, if anything, like a lot of folks in Harlem, at least the new Harlem, they look down on places like Baltimore. You know what I mean? Even though there is so much of our fate that's tied and we can go, that's a whole nother conversation, <laughs> like black capitalism and whatever else. But these are all things that um, show the importance of representing a space in a city like Baltimore. Yeah. And that it's not, you know, just another, um, you know, it's blackness is not a monolith and we're not all experiencing the same things. We experience very different things right. every day. So, yeah, I'm sorry if I stumbled no. around. <laughs> no, that was great. I mean, I it's interesting because I I hope that they changed their approach to doing travel stories now at mm. Appetit because they they published like a whole package on Semwan like post Hurricane Maria and there was just they at in one of the write ups of a place they they called um, they thought that this guy on a pernileria was. Uh, Karl Marx, but it was Be like Betances, who is an important person fighting for the liberation of Puerto Rico in the, in the 1800s. But they published that it was Karl Marx. And it's like, and so wow. it's just a real, it's really a missed opportunity when they are so lazy <laughs> and think that they understand things before they ask questions, which is, I think, you know, I come from working in traditional media and I come from internalizing its mores about how mm -hmm. to approach things. And so I've been undoing that in my in my own perspectives. And like so much of the answer to not doing a bad job is just listening <laughs> and asking questions. Yeah. And and that is, it's such a simple solution, you know, is, is to just read and listen and ask questions and not be embarrassed to not know things like that is the these are like very simple things we can do to do a better job <laughs> and so but that's the key part like yeah. you said not be embarrassed to not have the answer yeah. like that's not common it's not, it's not, <laughs> that's not common and that's not like i i don't know i feel like once you get to that point and maybe maybe this is me just making an assumption but i feel like once you get to that point of being at a condé nast like journalist yeah. you're like i have the answer i'm exactly. i'm in this place this place is validating the fact that i am the expert yeah so i just don't i don't know i don't i don't i don't have hope <laughs> I don't have hope 
culture one up personally. I, I really don't. I just feel like all there is is a change of staff. And just because your staff has more people of color, you act like that's something that's only white people. What Like everybody can move from a place, like have a very huge ego and move from a place where they know that, you know, like I, I don't know. I don't want to hope that, but <laughs> it is. Well, I, I was excited to see, even though I don't have a copy of it yet, that I hear the mail is slow too. So I've always, I'm always like, uh, it's going to take forever to get to me anyway. <laughs> so like, oh, no. but um, the, that you have non-English language in Palette Palette. Mm-hmm. And I have been saying this, that, you know, I, I used to write about um, literature, which has, a, you know, a very small, but like a very significant. Oh no, what you said is happening, is happening. Ah, oh, okay. But, yeah. oh, can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you now. Okay, okay I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. But um, uh, I was going to say that I come from like literature and literary criticism, and there is such a strong, though very small tradition there of translation. And not seeing that in food media has always been really perplexing to me. Like if I read art magazines, and even if they're not like, the most perfect art magazines like they do make an effort to be international in their scope and to have dispatches from different cities from people seeing the shows there and like I'm like wow this is there's a real understanding of like the need for that international conversation which will build international solidarity so I guess I just realized why there is no translation in food media (laughs) because it is such a it has so much money and so much tied up in maintaining the status quo that of course they wouldn't want real conversations between um, working people around the world um and so for you why was it important for you to have translation in the zine um, because it's not my story to pick apart and tell, you know, like, I feel like that's so common the thing. It's like commonly, like, it's so commonly the thing where I just know to expect it. Like, I just want to pick pieces out. And I think even in, um, I don't know, I think places like, obviously it's radio, but NPR, I think they do a good job sometimes, but even still at times I, I find that they fall short when they have like foreign language reporting when I when I hear it, I'm like, oh, what else is she saying? Because I know that's not fully what they just translated. Like, I want to know more. Mm-hmm. So for this um, publication, I had two women who were um, part of a collective here in Baltimore called Mirror Kitchen Collective. And it's a um, women's cooking collective. And they, sh- they well, they're a business, but they also, um, they work with refugees and immigrants who have come to Baltimore, um, some through the IRC and some through like a visa lottery. Um, and they get to share their cuisine and make money and um, earn a living doing what they love doing, which is cooking. Um, and I wanted to share their stories because in Baltimore a lot that they are often used as like a, like a heartwarming story, right? Like even the Baltimore sun, like, city paper when they were operating everybody was just like immigrants women business boom like this is it this is the story let's do it and it was just like there's so much more happening here and y'all are really just focusing on all of the like the the little target points like I want to know who this person is right Mm -hmm. and I feel like with Chef Iman who was um is a chef from Syria 
Um, and also with Chef Emilienne, who was a chef from Burkina Faso, like, um, I wanted to focus on how they got here, like how they didn't even want to be here in the mm-hmm. first place, right. like, and how they got here and like what life has been like for them here. And like, is this the community that they expected to find? Do they like think about their lives before they came back here or came here? Like what, what was the whole, I just want to connect with them or what are they seeing? Um, how are they feeling about being here in the midst of not only this pandemic, but like all of this, like, uprising that's happening around social justice and race right now like how are you processing that as a refugee as an immigrant person um you know coming here and thinking like america is all like all of this that like with all the propaganda that we put out into the world of like this being the place to be like how does it feel to be here and be like damn they got some shit too you know what i mean so that was really what we were talking about in the conversations and also I really wanted them to have their words in their own dialect. So thankfully I'm in a space where like Amir Hopkins, so we have tons of translators and I could work with folks on getting things translated um, in their specific dialect. Because to me, that is important. Mm-hmm. I hate when I see, like even with black folks, I hate when I see black folks interview, especially folks from the deep South and it's like changed around or it's published in a way that's kind of like, cute mm-hmm. like <laughs> cute little southern accent like in there like that's cute like that just adds to them being more of a character as mm-hmm. this, you know and it takes away from them being an actual human being right? right so for me i really wanted it to be true to the dialect in their own words and i wanted them to be able to read this they don't speak english well they don't read english well these women so i want them to see what i wrote about them or what our conversation consisted of i want them to see their words on paper and to be able to share that with their family and friends mm-hmm. um, because it's not just about me. Like these stories are important um, and I, they should not lose an aspect of like their livelihood because they get translated to English, which I feel like they do, you know, it's like who is telling the story? Like English speaking person is sharing this person's story with no consideration of the fact that they can't even read it. Yeah. So yeah. to me, it was really important that that, that that happened. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that because, you know, like you said, the the immigrant story in food in the U.S. is used as like just a a tool of nationalism. Basically, there's never a lot of honesty about it, like you're saying about like, why are people coming here? What is that experience really like? It's not just always the feel good story. It's a it's a story of of also loss and, and everything. And it's really interesting. It's not interesting. It's, it's, you know, predictable that it's always like, look at this immigrant woman owned cafe, you know, changing the world. It's like, we yeah. have to have more honest <laughs> conversations about yeah. everything. And it's like, uh, it's just really exhausting. And I'm so happy to hear that you're present, you're, you're talking about it in that way, <laughs> because it's just such a, it's such a, a story that is told in the most whitewashed possible way all the time. Um, yeah. and you know, for you is cooking a political act? Um, it never started out being that, you know, but now that I have a better understanding of like, um, my political presence, I guess, in the world as a person. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think cooking is a political act, but I definitely also, you know, I, I do still order out. Yeah. <laughs> I do, 
occasionally buy a processed food item, like a frozen food item. That's like, damn, why am I doing this? Um, <laughs> but I definitely, um, yeah, I think I think it is important to, to learn, to teach ourselves, to trust our tastes, our own tastes. Um, also be curious about other people's tastes and, you know, maybe not let that influence us too, too much. Like what is popular right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think curiosity is important. Curiosity um, tied to cooking is, is definitely important. Yeah. We shouldn't just be out here. I mean, we should be cooking and live and survive. But I think we should also be curious about where our food is coming from and like where these flavors are coming from that are trending now and like why they're trending. And what does that say about us as a country and consumers? Like all that is important. I don't think that I'm um, the most like I'm definitely not an Alicia Kennedy right now. Look, like. <laughs> You be hitting it, girl. Like the when I was listening to you on one day, I was like, "Oh!" I was like, "This is so cool." I I think you always come with the real, and I think it's really great that um, you are having these conversations that people are just now opening themselves up to. I mean, I think a lot of us, if you're, I mean, I was having conversations. I remember at one point, my ex, not my ex, with me. Not my ex. I don't know why I said this. My boyfriend. My partner. Um, my boyfriend, when he was in the military, um, they had a Burger King on the base. So he has this like very special place in his heart for Burger King. And he still eats Burger King. And I like, ooh. And when he, um, I remember he came home one day and he was like, don't be mad, but I got you a Whopper. And I was like, why would you give me a Whopper? He was like, because it's an impossible Whopper and I want you to taste it. And I was just like, oh, okay. But then I just, we had this huge conversation about like processed meat and meat alternatives. And like, it was just making me think like, is anybody else having these conversations? <laughs> and then to see like a couple months later, you have these conversations and then also see, I think food and wine did a story mm-hmm. on. Yeah. So I was just like, wow, this is really cool. And also to know that that's something that you've been exploring for a while now, though, I think it just kind of goes back to showing, um, I think we're in a shift now. Mm-hmm. I hope we're in a shift now of having conversations like this mm-hmm. and not like putting them off to the side as like, oh, so you're like food justice, right? <laughs> it's just like, uh, I remember that happened to me one time. I was in, um, I was in Terry Mom magazine and somebody was like, oh, are you in the food justice section? And I was like, no, they just put a story in my bakery. Why am I in the food justice section? Because I'm black. Mm-hmm. Like, like, it's just this whole idea of like the things that you're allowed to talk yeah. about as a black person, as a person of color. And I think it's interesting how like um, it can be very exhausting as a black person in food when you are constantly positioned to be having the woke conversations, mm-hmm. right? Was like, shit, I just want to make pie. Like, can I just make some pie? Like, why y'all, why do y'all come for me for all this great shit? I don't even work in hospitality anymore. And y'all still want me to tell you about all the stuff that is wrong with hospitality so you can be like, yes, but then not change anything about it. So, like, what do you want from me? So, I think that I'm happy that we are having these conversations about food being a political or cooking being a political act. And I think that it's good that they're becoming more mainstream. Um, and not just kind of, like I said, being pushed off to the side of being like, social justice warriors. Like, yes, like it's for everyone to have. Yes. We should all be having these conversations. Yes. That's why I, people call me an activist sometimes. What are you talking oh about? Oh, my God. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that. 
You can't talk about any of this stuff without people saying that you're an activist. Or and it's like, no, there are real activists and I am not there are real activists. <laughs> That's how I feel. Well they're like Crystal Mac activist. I was like, what have I what have I activist for? Can you tell me specifically? Because I I don't think I am. I'm just a person that's being like that's like saying like if we walk into a room and I see a pile of like dirt on the floor and I'm like, there's some dirt and it's like Crystal Mac is a cleaner. <laughs> I just saw that it was dirt on the floor. I mean, we all clean it up. That doesn't make it like cleaners. It just means we're being responsible human beings and cleaning up the world. Like, I don't. So it's just stupid to me. Yeah. I think that that is a way for them. It's more for them. Yeah. It's more for them to feel like they're hitting all their bases because the real activists are having conversations that like hold them accountable. Yeah. And Absolutely. they don't want to do that. Yeah. So. Yeah, anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. That's the greatest analogy I've heard ever about that. It's so stupid. It's so dumb. It's just like, you can change that with anything. It's like me walking into a zoo and being like, there's a bunch of animals. And it's like, all of a sudden, I'm a zookeeper. Because I'm like, <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense. No, no. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been mm-hmm. wonderful. <laughs> yeah. How do I, I'm already a subscriber. I've been for a while. How do I go back and adjust to become a member? Or do I have uh, to sign up twice? Because I tried to do it and I was like, it looks like I have to sign up twice. <laughs> no, no, I, honestly, I don't know how to do it. I think I can send you a link to your, what would be your like page for your account. So, mm-hmm. and then you can do stuff there, but I'm going to forward you this this interview anyway when it comes okay. out oh, next month so don't worry about it <laughs> okay. how many interviews it seems like you do a lot of interviews a month like- it's like every week once a week and so at this point I've done 50 something for it yeah so it comes out every week yeah <laughs> okay well cool well thank you for reaching out to me I'm a very big fan of your work oh, thank you I'm mutual. I think you're a great writer I'm Still a baby budding writer trying to get to that point, but you know you're you're amazing. Oh, thank you, it thank you. It means a lot to be a part of this. So thanks. Um, okay, well, I'll 